Chapter 7 of Regiment of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. Regiment of Women by Clement Stain. Chapter 7. Alwyn, drumming with her fingers on the window sill as she stood by Louise's desk, was distinctly annoyed. Louise, for the first time since she had known her, was late. It was, indeed, not one of her assigned classes, but she and Louise had found their hours together so insufficient for all the work that they were trying to make good, that Alwyn had good-naturedly arranged to give her a daily extra lesson. It bit into Alwyn's meager free time, but she was fond of Louise, proud of her, too, and there was Claire. Claire was so anxious for Louise's success. Claire had been so pleased with the plan. Perhaps it was natural that Alwyn, as she made the arrangement, forgot to consult Elsbeth. She told her about it afterwards, and Elsbeth praised her for her unselfishness and was anxious lest she should be overtired. She did not remind Alwyn that she was alone all day, that she had been accustomed to look forward to the gay tea hour when Alwyn returned, full of news and nonsense. She resigned herself cheerfully to a solitary meal and to keeping the muffins hot against Alwyn's uncertain homecoming. The extra lessons had been a real boon to Louise, and she had grown attached to Alwyn and intimate with her. Alwyn's elder sisterly attitude to the children she taught, although it horrified the older women, was seldom abused. It merely made her the recipient of quaint confidences and gave her an insight into the characters of her pupils that was invaluable to girls and governess alike. To developing girls, a confidant is a necessity. The present boarding school system of education ousts the mother from that, her natural position, renders her, to the daughter steeped in an alien atmosphere, an outsider, lacking all understanding. Invaluable years pass before the artificial gulf that boarding school creates between them is spanned and the substitute for the only form of sympathy and interest that is entirely untainted by selfish impulses is usually the chance acquaintance, the neighbor of desk and bedroom. Occasionally, very occasionally, for the girl's feverish admiration usually precludes sane acquaintanceship, a mistress of more than average insight. Such a mistress, Alwyn, in spite of, or perhaps because of, her youthful indiscretions of manner, was in a fair way to become. And of all the children who had opened their affairs to her, none had experienced more completely the tonic effect of a kind heart and a sense of humor than Louise. She would come to her lesson, overtired from the strain of the morning classes, overstimulated from the contact with Claire, overhopeful or utterly depressed as the mood took her. Alwyn's cheerful interest was a balm to the child's overwrought nerves. Alwyn let her spend a quarter of an hour or more in confiding the worries and excitements of the day, after which Louise, curiously revived, contrived to get through an amazing amount of work. There was no doubt as to Louise's capacity for advanced work, but her state of mind affected her output. She was, as Alwyn once phrased it to Claire, like a violin you had to tune her up before she was fit for use. And Alwyn's tuning had done more than she or Claire or even Louise herself had guessed towards her success in her new class. Bit by bit, Alwyn had heard all about Louise, the details of her meager home life, 
her attitude to the busy world of school, that frightened while it attracted her, her difficulties with her fellows, her delight in her work. Finally there was Claire. Louise was very shy about Claire, inclined to scent mockery, to be on the defensive. But Alwyn's own matter-of-fact enthusiasm had its effect. Also, Alwyn's interest, though it invited, never demanded confidences. It took Louise some time to realize that it arose from simple friendliness of soul, that there was neither curiosity nor pedagogic zeal behind it, that though she was teased and laughed at, she was respected and, out of school hours, treated as an equal, that she and her schoolgirl secrets were safe with Miss Duran. It was, indeed, in the light of after-events, pathetic that Louise, dazzled by Claire's will-o'-the-wisp brilliance, never realized how close to her for a season the friend, the elder sister she had longed for, really stood. With the egoism of a child, and a child in love, she was humbly and passionately grateful for Claire's least sign of interest, yet accepted all the many little kindnesses that Alwyn showed her as a matter of course. She scarcely realized, absorbed as she was in Claire, that she was even fond of Miss Duran, yet she relied on her implicitly, and Alwyn, innocent of the jealous, acquisitive impulse that tainted Claire's intercourse with any girl who caught her fancy, was not at all disturbed or hurt by Louise's attitude. She looked after the child as she would have looked after a starving cat or a fugitive emperor if they had come her way, as a matter of course, and as instinctively as she ate her dinner. She was thinking of Louise as she sat waiting, and a little curious as to what the child would say to her. She had heard all about the Browning lesson at lunch from Rose Levy, whose veiled epigrammatic malice was usually amusing. Agatha had been on her other side, and she had anticipated equally amusing protests and contradictions and a highly colored and totally different version. But Agatha had been unusually subdued that morning. Both had made it apparent, however, that Claire had been more than a little pleased with Louise. But, however triumphant Louise's morning might have been, she had no business to be late now. What did she mean by keeping her waiting? Twice had Alwyn been down to the preparation room, searching for her. She did not mean to be impertinent, of course, but it was, at least, casual. Alwyn, with easy, evanescent indignation, resolved to give Louise a taste of her tongue. Here the child herself burst in upon her meditations, flushed to her glowing eyes, that were bright as if with drugs, excited as Alwyn had never yet guessed that she could be, charged with some indefinable quality, as a live wire is charged with electricity. She stammered her apologies mechanically, sure of pardon, and, the formality complied with, was eager, touchingly eager for questions and the relief of communication. But Alwyn, at nineteen, could not be expected to forego a legitimate grievance. She read Louise a little lecture on punctuality and politeness, and settled at once to the work in hand. She said, with intention, that they must not waste any more time. Louise submitted with her usual meekness, and did, Alwyn could see, do her utmost to apply herself to her work. But her answers were ludicrously vague and mal a propos, and she met Alwyn's comments momentarily sharper with an abstracted smile. Suddenly Alwyn lost patience with her. I don't know what's the matter with you today, Louise, she said sharply, 
I don't believe you've taken in a word of what I've said. If you can't take a little more trouble, I'd better go home. Louise, obviously and pathetically jerked back to consciousness from some dreamer's paradise, looked up at her with scared, apologetic eyes. The radiance dimmed slowly from her face. She made no answer, only to put up her hand to her head with a queer little gesture of helplessness. "'What's the matter with you?' demanded Alwyn, but already more gently. Her anger was always fleeting as a puff of smoke. But Louise merely shrugged her shoulders and looked vaguely at her again. Then she returned to her work. Alwyn, walking up and down the room, watched her intently as she bent over the Latin grammar. She was wrinkling her brows over a piece of prose that she had already construed at the previous lesson, and with an ease that had astonished Alwyn. She looked bewildered and put her hand to her head again. Her efforts to recall her wandering thoughts were patent and almost physical in their intensity. Her small hand hovered, contracting and relaxing, like a baby catching at butterflies. Alwyn was puzzled by her. The child was sincere, but obviously something momentous had happened and was still occupying her, to the exclusion of all else. Alwyn wished that she had been less hasty. She felt that she should not have checked her. She stood a moment beside her, reading what she had written. It was scarcely legible and made no sense. She put a hand on her shoulder. Louise, you are writing nonsense. What is it? Tell me what the matter is. Louise laid down her pen, gave her a quick, shy smile, hesitated uncertainly, then, to Alwyn's dismay, collapsed on the low desk in a fit of wild, hysterical crying. Alwyn always shed the mistress in emergency. She whipped her arms about the child and, sitting down, gathered her into her lap. She felt how the little, thin body was wrenched and shaken by the sobs it did not attempt to control, but she said nothing only held it comfortingly tight. Slowly, the paroxysm subsided, and the words came, jerky, fragmentary, faint. Alwyn bent close to catch them. Louise was so sorry. She was all right now. Mr. Rand must think her crazy. No, no, nothing wrong. It was the other way round. She was so happy that it frightened her. She was madly happy. She had been in heaven all day. It was too wonderful to tell anyone about. Even Miss Duran. Miss Hartle. No one could ever know what Miss Hartle was. She had been so good to her. So wonderful. She had made Louise so happy that she was frightened. She couldn't believe it was possible to be so madly happy. That was all. Yes, it had made her cry. The pure happiness. Wasn't it silly? Only she was so dreadfully tired. It had hurt her head trying to do the Latin, because she was so tired. Yes, she had had headaches lately, but she didn't care. It was worth it, to please Miss Hartle. It was queer that being so happy should make her want to cry. It was comical, wasn't it? She began to laugh as she spoke, with tears brimming over her lashes, and for a few moments was inclined to be hysterical again. But Alwyn's firm grasp and calm voice was too much for Louise's will, weakened by emotion and fatigue. She was soon coaxed and hushed into quiet again, and after lying passively for a while in Alwyn's arms, fell into the sudden light sleep of utter exhaustion. Alwyn, rocking her gently, 
sat on in the darkening room, without a thought of the passage of time, hustling over the problem in her arms. She was too ignorant and inexperienced to understand Louise's outburst, or to realize the dangerous strain that the child's sensibilities were undergoing. But the touch of the little figure, clinging, nestling to her, stirred her. She was vaguely aware that something, somehow, was amiss. Innocently, she rejoiced that Claire was being kind to Louise, that the child was so happy and content, but the complaint of fatigue, the frequent headaches, troubled her. She would speak to Elsbeth. Perhaps the child needed a tonic? Elsbeth would know. She glanced down. How different people looked asleep. She had never before realized how young Louise was. What was she, thirteen? But what a baby she looked, with her thin, child's shape and small, clutching hands. It was the long-lashed lids that did it, hiding the beautiful eyes that were so much older, as she saw now, than the rest of Louise. With her soul asleep, Louise looked ten, and a frail little ghost of ten, at that. Alwyn frowned. She supposed Claire Hardale realized how young Louise was. Was right in allowing her to work so hard? But Claire knew all about girls, and what did she, Alwyn, know? After all, Louise had never flagged before. It was probably the usual end-of-term fatigue, and, of course, it was necessarily an unusually stiff three months for her. She needed a holiday. Next term would come more easily to her, poor little impetuous Louise. Alwyn realized that she was growing fond of the child. Suddenly she heard footsteps in the corridor, and her own name in Claire's impatient accents. Louise, too, roused at the sound, and, jerking herself upright, slid from Alwyn's lap to her feet as the door opened and the light was switched on with a snap. Claire stood in the doorway. Serenely, Alwyn rose, smoothing the creases in her dress, while with the other hand she steadied Louise, swaying and blinking in the strong light. Claire's sharp eyes appreciated her calm no less than the tear stains on Louise's cheek. She guessed distortedly at the situation. She bit her lip. She found nothing to be annoyed at, yet she was not pleased. Alwyn, I've been hunting for you high and low. I thought you were coming home to tea with me. Alwyn beamed at her. Of course. And do you know, I forgot to tell Elsbeth. Isn't it disgraceful? But I'm coming. She turned to Louise. My dear, run along home and get to bed early. You look dreadfully tired. Doesn't she, Miss Hardell? But Claire was already in the passage. Alwyn hurried after her with a last cheerful nod, and Louise heard the echo of their footsteps die away in the distance. Still dazed and heavy with sleep, her thoughts obscured and chaotic, she sat down again stupidly at her desk in the alcove of the window. She leaned her forehead against the cold pane and looked out. It was a wild night. The wind soughed and shrieked in the bare trees. The rain tore past in gusts. The lamppost at the corner was mirrored in the wet pavement like a moon on an oily sea. Louise pushed open the casement. The wind lulled as she did so, and she leaned out. The air, at least, was mild, and a faint backwash of rain sprayed soothingly upon her hot cheeks and swollen eyes. Slowly her thoughts shaped themselves. So the day was over, the happiest day she had ever had. She thought God was very wonderful to have made such a woman as Miss Hartle. 
She sent him a hasty little prayer of thanks. But she had been very foolish that afternoon. She could not understand it now. She hoped Mr. Rand would not tell Miss Hartle. Miss Hartle had been in a great hurry. Was that why she had not said good night to her? But such a little word. She wondered why Miss Hartle had not said good night to her. The front door below the window creaked and opened. Louise peered downwards. Miss Duran and Miss Hartle came down the steps sheltering under one umbrella, talking. Their voices floated up. I hope you don't spoil her, Alwyn. Yes, I know. Alwyn was murmuring friendly adjectives. But a mistress is in a peculiar position. You should not let yourself be too familiar. A gust of wind and rain, whirling down the road, bore away the rest of the sentence. Louise shut the window. She shivered a little as she gathered up her books. Her happiest day was over. End of chapter 7 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona